Thank you for joining us for another Natter and Noor conversation. This series is being hosted by Clarion Call, and Clarion Call's whole purpose is exploring movement building for whole of community change. We focus on the how. We're wanting to step behind the curtain, look at what works and what gets in the way. So we've been exploring this question through a number of different social issues. I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the many lands on which we meet today and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would also like to extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. I would also like to acknowledge that all of our work can be strengthened by listening to the voice of our First Nations people and carrying their wisdom and practices into the work we do as we all go forward together. I'm your host, Sharon Fraser, one of the founders of Clarion Call, and I'm joined today by two incredible people that I have been fasting to have a conversation with, Dr Anitra Nelson and Megan Burkett. We will be exploring the concept of the new economy, what shifts we need to make in our thinking and action to build regenerative, equitable economic systems. That's quite a mouthful. So we'll be exploring this and how do we build our efforts together so that we can move it from small action to collective action. I'm joining today from Jara country, the land of the Jarjarung people. And Anitra, I think you are doing the same. That's correct. We live on Jara country. Yeah, and I feel very privileged to live on Jara country. Thanks, Anitra. And where are you joining us from, Megan? Yeah, thanks, Sharon. I'm joining from Noongar country today. And, yeah, I guess in the spirit of the topic of the conversation, would really like to acknowledge the long history that, that our First Nations people had um, around their own economies, you know, wonderful steady-state economies that they had created over thousands of years and, and what we can learn from these in these discussions about our new economies. Beautiful. Thanks for bringing that in. Now, what I'd like you each to do is talk to us about what experiences you're drawing on for today's conversation. I have intentionally gone out into the world looking for alternatives because when I was a teenager, I read Limits to Growth, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and was immediately drawn into the environmental movement and later social movements such as the women's movement, but also a lot of social equity and ecological justice movements, those kinds of things. And so a lot of us have been looking for alternatives over the last 50 years, actually. Mm. And so I draw directly on a lot of those experiences that I have because I do think that doing and making and thinking in the real world is the real material of how we can move forward. But also I've been an academic and fortunately been able to do some of my work, in fact, a lot of my work, on similar kinds of topics. And so that's given me an exposure to people who are sitting back and thinking other people in other cultures who also have a lot of lessons that they can teach people. Mm, that's beautiful. Thanks for that, Anitra. What about yourself, Megan? What are you drawing on today? Yeah, thanks, Sharon and Anitra. Look, there's some real nice synergy with Anitra, but yeah, to sort of unpack some of that. So as a really young child, I had the fortunate experience of 
living in eastern Arnhem Land in a First Nations community out there. And, you know, just at that age, really experiencing a different type of economy that was moving in this community and moving across Arnhem Land and and it just being embedded and part of, you know, those people and, and how they operated. I worked for many years as, you know, straight out of university in the corporate sector and in the finance sector. And, I, you know, it didn't take me long to start to see the cracks in, in mm. that environment and in that sector and start to really see to the extent it was just such a man-made system or human-made system that was just so disconnected from the real world. And so, you know, from that point really started to pursue alternate, you know, pathways and definitely along that environment journey as well, like Anitra. I spent many years in the environment sector, so environmental legislation and policy and regulation. And um, what made me take a big shift recently was that I really didn't see that we were making any systemic positive progress in the environment space. Lots of great positive individual Mm. wins but systemically we were still going backwards in that space and the root of that I thought was was our economy. So in the last few years I've just been really diving into I guess that broad term of the new economy so Mm -hmm. did some wonderful work with the New Economy Network Australia, working with other groups you know that created like the new local of course, thinking about things and drawing on donut economics and those different frameworks. And now I'm really embedded in community wealth building, which I'm happy to explain a little bit about more today. Mm, Beautiful. Today is going to be a really rich conversation. I can feel it already. Before we step into the whole concept of new economy, what I'd like us to do now is to start the conversation by exploring the current economic paradigms and their impacts that you're seeing. So therefore, what's the call for change? Would you like to have a crack at that first, Anitra? I think that housing is a really good illustration of some generic problems which we have right across markets. So producing for trade for markets is actually not producing for basic needs. It's producing for what might be wanted by people. And so we have a lot of waste because the production itself only anticipates people's demand. So I think that housing is such a good example of this because a lot of us go out into a market and look for a house and it's quite difficult to find something that we really want in terms of it meeting our basic needs. Mm-hmm. So the big problem here is, is that we're drawn into a system where it's already common practice for people to spend an enormous amount of their income on housing and to mm-hmm. be indebted, to be indebted socially for decades. So they're wedded to work just to pay the mortgage or to pay a landlord. And Mm -hmm. this all seems to be ridiculous. If you take a real value approach, we've actually got enough housing because many people do have two houses. And what this means is, is, is that say, for instance, you didn't have money and you didn't have all of those kinds of relationships that we hook into monetary and market systems, we could just divvy up the housing 
on the basis of people's basic needs. And as their needs change, people can move to different housing. And so some of my work has been in what I call eco-collaborative housing. And there are examples where this actually happens. Mm, that's beautiful. That Using that housing as a great exemplar in the current economic paradigm, I think, is really powerful. What about from your perspective, Megan? Yeah, thanks, Sharon. I guess in terms of thinking about the kind of current system, you know, I like to kind of strip, strip this notion of the economy back and just to remind ourselves that, you know, it is essential that we do have some form of marketplace and some form, you know, form of system that allows us to, you know, trade the goods and the services that we need and the expertise and, and the resources that we have. You know, I guess I feel like, you know, our current economy has just become so separated from people in place. It is an entity of its own. You know, humans have this way of creating these monocultures and monosystems, whereas, you know, what's wonderful about the earth is that biodiversity. And so, we're continually creating this economic system that is just more like a monosystem. But going forward, mm. we need to think about, well, what's the biodiverse economic systems that we're going to need to fit people in place? I guess with the current economic system, in that way that I talked about, because it's so separated from people in place, it's really grown out of, you know, wealthy people and people that already had assets and capital kind of creating a system that's going to support their needs. So, you know, what do the wealthy, what do those that own capital and assets, what do the big business owners need to continue to drive this industry and this system? And in that, for the rest of the economy, it's like, well, you get a job. And so we're going to create a system that enables us to continue to own and manage and control all the wealth and the assets and the system around that and give you a job. Whereas I guess what we'd really love to see is this sort of biodiversity of local economic systems that are supporting local people in place, but then, of course, some level of national and global economic system that enables that to thrive and all of those local places and people to thrive. I guess the last the last thing to say around that, and I haven't, haven't thought really deeply on how this plays out, but I've got to bring it into the conversation is just around population. The biggest issue that we are facing other than climate change and, and, the, and the root cause is, is our population size. And so how do you create an economy that's going to enable regeneration when we just have such huge populations across the mm. world? And so it is a really complex problem, but I think we can't ignore the role that population plays in trying to create regenerative systems because with such big, big populations, regeneration on one beautiful earth is, is going to continually be really challenging. Mm. So you've talked about, you've both talked about the current system, both being disconnected. You've talked about it being disconnected from natural systems. And you've also talked about inequity that is inherent in the current system because it was built for a particular part of the population in a particular culture. And then we have, you've talked about how we've then tried to make that a universal one size fits all without consideration of people or place or the environment that we are living and operating in. You mentioned specifically, Megan, the, the notion of climate change and about population growth. So 
there is a call to change. There is a need for us to think differently about how we think about economy and how we live with economy. So if that call is there, and, and in, even in my own life, and I'm not an economist by any stretch of the imagination, but I see it as well. I see it and I see others calling for it. But what's, what are the alternatives? You know, this is what we've known. This is what I know. This is what I've grown up with. This is how I know the world works. So what are the alternatives? I do think that over the, the last number of decades, we have increasing numbers of alternatives that are being, you know, thrown up by people. And I think that that's really great. One thing I'd like to say is, is that when I talk about production for trade, that mm -hmm. trade is not the only way of exchanging things. We can exchange things on the basis of needs. We can all sit around a dinner table and take what we need, that kind of thing. A lot of people do use the word exchange with trade as easy substitutions, whereas if you want to be talking about the difference between non-monetary ways of doing things and monetary ways of doing things, you really need to establish that. One movement that I've been involved with for over 10 years now is degrowth. Mm -hmm. A lot of people go like, what? Degrowth? <laughs> because they think decrease and they and diminish using D in that way. Whereas the D in degrowth is more like in dematerialize or deconstruct. It's uh, really breaking apart. And so the degrowth movement has been very much about deconstructing, but that that whole drive towards growth, which tends to build the negative kinds of economies that we've been talking about. And degrowth is very much about quality rather than quantity and about sufficiency. So again, getting back to well, what about what are our basic needs and how can most of most people's basic needs be met? And as you say, there's been such there's such an erosion of diversity when you have the kind of market economy that we have, where every everything is just reduced to commodities that we find in in a supermarket. Whereas the First Nations continent that that was invaded had you know six hundred different kinds of languages, cultures, ways of working the land as those particular areas of land were best nurtured and cared for. So I think that focusing on real values and approaches such as degrowth are actually really important and dovetail very much with my kind of critique of monetary economies. And I mean, I can talk about examples of, of that later. Only thing that I would say about population is, is that it's extremely difficult for us to tell what kind of carrying capacity the earth has in terms of human population. We can certainly say that the number of other species that are, that are dying out is absolutely extraordinary and a very, very dangerous sign. But I think the main problem for people in Australia, for instance, is, is that we overconsume earth. We know that if, if we all had, you know, the same kind of access to the kinds of goods that are being and services that are created in the world, Australians are using four to five times their share 
And that that's where the degrowth comes in, is coming, you know, approaching that problem really directly. Mm. So can I just ask you something from that, Anitra? So you were talking, you're talking about how we can be thinking about this exchange, not as in terms of exchange of money, but in terms of exchange based on need. And that if we hold that exchange based on need, it by its very consequences leads to degrowth because you are working with what is needed rather than what is wanted. And you have also talked about this notion of real value. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by real value? Okay, so we know that the way that money works is it's a very anthropocentric, very human made concept and game basically and it all has to do with sharing what we've made but and within capitalism only a very small proportion of us actually have any say in what's actually created how it's created who creates it or where so these are really big problems and what real values signals within that context is a different kind of value at the basis of an economy that is social and ecological. So taking into account the limits of Earth and its massive potential on which our entire bodies exist and also fair and equitable relationships between people, so people's basic needs are met. And people's basic needs aren't all equal. We all have different bodies, we have different minds, we have different needs. Mm -hmm. So rather than that small number of people who are actually on the basis of money organising how businesses operate, you would have communities assessing what are the basic needs of the households that constitute those communities. And then they would be working towards meeting that demand as much as possible in their local area. And mm-hmm. that, would, that as soon as everything's made, it just goes to the people who's ordered them. There isn't a market because people have said, we need this amount of bread, we need this, this number of eggs, okay? Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are things that can only be got from other communities But if you had a universe of communities that are all thinking like that, then at a bigger, wider scale, they they are working on the basis of needs and greater potential of some areas to offer salt for other areas and that kind of thing. Mm. Thanks for explaining that through, Anitra, because I think that's a great example on how we can build ways of being and interacting to meet our needs without money, without there being the financial or the capitalist system that sits behind it. I'm keen to hear from you that, Megan, particularly around what you see as some of these alternatives from the current capitalist system and feel free to riff off anything that Anitra said. Yeah, absolutely. I think you mentioned, Sharon, around the call to change and and I think in some ways that's one of the biggest challenges in the, you know, space of economic transformation is that there are some things out there we have a really clear call to change around in terms of, you know, climate mm-hmm. change is a clear call to change there. 
There is a clear call to change for many, not all, but for many around the economy. But I think it's so broad is what makes it challenging. So change Mm -hmm. what, change how and who to change. And I think to date, the call to change has been that those economic agents that already have a lot of control, it's been a call for them to change. You know, mm-hmm. so big mm-hmm. corporations, government who control, you know, fiscal policy, multinational corporations who really do control the economy these days, banks and so on and so forth. The call to change has sort of been to them. You need to mm. change because we have an inequitable system. We have an economic system that's exceeding, you know, growth and resources as Anitra spoke about. And I guess I think that you know, increasingly we need to shift that call to change and the call to change needs to go to people in place and Mm -hmm. we need local people in local place to have their own individual relevant call to change for the the local economy that they need, like Anitra spoke about, what are the needs of that people in that place? And I think within that, there's going to be a multiplicity of of slightly different calls to change at the local level. But I think the thread of the call to change that we really need to grow and be unified across, across the world is all local people in place saying we are calling to change ourselves and our local economy because at the local level, every individual does have some influence and control. We don't Mm -hmm. have influence control over banks. We don't have influence and control, you know, over the, the sort of federal economic system other than a vote every three to four years. We don't have influence and control over, you know, international laws around, you know, federal things, international agreements. But we do have control over where we spend our money, where our businesses spend our money, the types of strategies our councils are going to have, you know, who owns the land within our local community. That's a harder one, but we do have some level of control or collectively we could. Who owns the assets and how are they used? You know, what? Who, who has the investment flows and how do they flow at the local level? So for me, I think, you know, that's that call to change I'd like to really see unified across the world and across Australia. I guess in terms of the alternatives, yeah, as Anitra said, there really are a number of wonderful alternatives. At the really big picture level, I do love the donut economics model. And Anitra spoke to this in terms of, you know, we of course have this wonderful world which has these ecological limits of what it can provide. And we don't know necessarily what that full carrying capacity is, as Anitra spoke to, but we do know some of the ecological limits in that we've overshot them and climate change is a great example of that. So we need an economy that's going to fit within those ecological limits so our beautiful earth can thrive. But then we also need an economy that's going to support the needs of the human population around that. And so I think Mm -hmm. that's a great framework for how the world and how we collectively create, I guess, this sort of earth economy. I guess going down from that, I also love the well-being economy approach that sort of being adopted by 
you know, many, many nations. And that's sort of, I guess, a national policy approach to say, well, we need to shift to a well-being economy. Mm-hmm. I think the notion of a well-being economy is still being hashed out. It also has the potential of really not achieving anything that we want it to. It could just be you know, a term and a model, but I love that it is, you know, it's there and it's being discussed and considered. Um, I guess drilling down into the work that we do, which is all around community wealth building, we, of course, absolutely love community wealth building as one of the alternatives in the mix. And for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a local economic and community development model That is about putting more control and influence and power back into the hands of local people and creating local economies that are, you know, directed by local people that reinvest back into the local place and that are, you know, really integrated into place. And I guess in terms of what's the alternative and how do we create that call to change, I mentioned one of the key principles in community wealth building is ownership. And when we're talking about ownership and community wealth building, we're talking about having an actual equity stake in our local economic systems. So we're not talking Mm -hmm. about ownership, you know, as a loose like, oh, the community are owning this process and they're kind of guiding this process, which is what happens, but really they're not. We're talking about (laughs) an actual stake, actual equity in their local economy. So local people actually having share in local businesses, a share, an equity share in local assets of different kinds, whatever it is that that they're passionate about. Now, once you actually give true ownership, being an equity share in parts of our local economy, local people now have the right to vote through whatever Mm -hmm. process they're. They now have the right to make decisions They now have influence and they receive a financial return from this. So I guess in terms of the alternatives, you know, my vision and my hope is that we embed this notion of financial ownership, you know, and equity ownership at the local level across the whole world. And then you have these local people who have control and they have influence and decision-making power in the parts of the economy they are passionate about. And then we will see local places and local people creating the local economic systems that meet their needs in place. And then, of course, we want them to be networking and working with each other so that we create this sort of network system that fits within the larger limits but also supports each other through, you know, trade and exchanges. To me, what I'm hearing is that you have both have a similar sense of what's being called for in terms of alternatives around it being place-based and being within the limits of the planet as well as serving the needs of people. And I'm also hearing a diversity in your opinion as well around Megan saying, how do we bring that current financial system to put the control into the hands of community? And Anitra, I'm hearing you say, let's let's absolutely put that system to the side and think of different building a new system based on a different value system. So I'm really interested to explore how you're hearing each other and how those pieces may or may not fit together in some journey of change. 
Can I bring up a place that I visited yesterday, our local area, Sharon? It's called the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. And they're a couple who'd gotten of an age where they needed to have a succession plan and none of their children really wanted to take up the farm, which is an orchard, um, decided to experiment with leasing parts of their land and conveying skills to other people to create what is sort of a series of uh, smaller initiatives. And what they've done is, is, is that they've turned over some, in fact, most of their orchard to six people who call themselves the orchard keepers to look after the orchard. They also have turned over some of their land to vegetable growing, the gung-ho growers, and there's a micro-dairy. And so each of these has very interesting elements, you know, in terms of having community-supported agriculture, direct links with very local cafes and hospitality industry. And it's so rich in terms of their relationships with local people, but that that comes at the cost of taking a lot of time. And I think that having experimented with some of those things myself when I was much younger is one of the reasons that I found money a real barrier because the whole monetary system and the market system is very much time-based and doing things in a very particular kind of way. And so what I see as the trick here is is that we live Mm. in a very heavily monetized system and it's loosening all of this using systems like ethical fields where where everything is reaching out with the same kind of goals of making much things much more under community control, whereby we are much more integrated with our place so we have a real respect for the nature in our place and we have a respect for one another in our community. I think that, as you said, Sharon, there are ways in which these things are connecting and have common aspects to them. But I think we have to free ourselves a little bit where there's so much effort and desire of people to make things work that they don't go bankrupt just because it doesn't make sense in a monetary system. Mm-hmm. We have to try and make the kinds of connections that community-supported agriculture does, sometimes in purely monetary ways, but I know certain community-supported agriculture, which is done on an all-in-kind basis because people mm-hmm. actually volunteer labour and they get the fruits of that, but they're all acting collectively. So I think, as you say, we're living in a time of diversity and change, and we actually, this is part of the shaking out of it, is going in different directions. Mm. Yeah, just on that, Anitra, I think what's really positive about the times we're in at the moment is, is that initiatives like that are increasingly being designed and established and run in a, you know, financially and economically sustainable way. And and I think the support, you know, from government and other institutions is still low, but starting to grow to actually see initiatives like that as the future and see them as part of the economic system 
and and want to provide you know the policy framework to enable them to survive because often I guess we've seen initiatives similar to that as sort of like oh that's community building that's over there and you know that's voluntary work and you know whereas actually it's like no this is this is a really great part of our of our economy this is relational transactions this is building so much for people in place but we need these types of you know initiatives and businesses to be sustainable to be financially sustainable and to thrive and and then in that way it's really important to create a wider system around that so they do thrive and survive how do you take that comment uh, anitra I do think that it's still shoving everything back into what you're going to have if you have a an aim that the only things that are really thriving are ones that where the accounts balance monetarily. I think that you're you're going back into the same kind of problem of the system that we're trying to break away from. So yeah, so that's that's where I see the problem there. You're making me think of, I don't know if either of you have come across Bill Sharp's work on the three horizons. And so he, he speaks about the horizon one is, is the current um, world that we're living in. Horizon three is, is where we want to get to. And horizon two is the things that are happening along the way that are either building us towards horizon three or they're actually still really Horizon 1. They might look a little bit like Horizon 3, but they're going to be held captive by Horizon 1. And the reason that I bring this in is you're both making me think of in order to make a transition from the current capitalist system that you're talking about into a new economy system that lives within the planet's limits and fits sociologically, there are going to need to be some some projects that take from the current into the future that look more like the current than the future. And it begs the question for me that how do we have it that that happens and they don't get held captive by the current system? I think Three Horizons is is a great way of, you know, looking at the economic transition we need to make. And, you know, I think what's really challenging is, is that third horizon in this space? You know, Mm -hmm. honestly, like if, if I had the opportunity to sit back and 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 really visualize what I would like to see as the third horizon, yeah, in the same way as Anitra's spoken about, I would take away a lot of the current economic system. You know, I would completely, you know, deconstruct it and, you know, we would have something that looked really completely different. I guess so it's it's I guess like I said though, is that you know, I think what the economic system needs to look like has to be this biodiverse economic system and what it's going to look like, you know, in another country to another country and to another state will just be so fundamentally different. We don't know what, you know, these wonderful future like 200 300 400 year economies might look like, but if we can just liberate ourselves from the current economy to give ourselves more ownership and, you know, democratic control to actually make decisions about what we want it to look like, I think that is a really great solid step to move forward and where where we go to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. It's very much sounding as if, if we think about how we do local economy, we think about this in place and we think about that 
whatever the third horizon point is, it's within the limits of the planet and it's within the needs, the social needs of people and other living beings. So even if we don't know exactly what it looks like, we, we've got like a bit of a shared framework here for what the parameters or the boundaries of that system may be. If that's the case and none of us know exactly what it's going to look like and none of us know exactly how to get there, and there's the example you've talked about in community wealth building, Megan, which is basically moving the system, nudging the system, taking it to places that it's not been before. And there's the stuff that you've talked about and nature, which is basically saying, let's let set the current system completely to the side and, and look what a new system looks like. And there will be lots of other examples of different people trying different versions of that along the way as this journey happens. So I'm keen to hear from you about what else you know is happening that might be about really building into this notion of new economy or economy that holds both the tension between the ecological boundaries and the needs of people and other living beings. I think that there's a lot of really interesting initiatives which fall into a kind of degrowth and potentially non-monetary area. So I'll talk about some local things to begin with. So, I mean, there's the example of a piggery that we have in our local area where they've actually reduced the number of pigs that they use, but they've actually increased the value add that they get out of the pigs by using all of its bits and pieces, you know, a lot more and going back to a lot more traditional ways of using things and also making sure that all of the inputs and the outputs are more in a circular economy kind of kind of way. So also when I recently went to frame a picture that someone gave me at Christmas in Ligon Street in Melbourne, there's a framing establishment that's like a big warehouse and they do framing, they sell frames, but they also have great big tables and they, they have instructions on their website how people can come in, just pick up quite a cheap frame. They're able to frame their own picture there and they're able to get help from people. And these are the things that are actually ways of living in a current world where you're having to deal with trade and money and make all the figures meet. But you're mm -hmm. actually working towards people becoming more knowledgeable, more skilled. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you'd be able to do those things without necessarily having any, any money taking place. And you'd be able to do it you know, in convivial ways and in very community-based kind of ways. Now, in Hungary, in Budapest, there's a degrowth, well, we call them degrowth formations, okay? So the idea of a degrowth formation is you have kinds of activities like I've just spoken about, but you bring them all together and they call themselves degrowth and they have social centres that are aligned with them and political politics and and artistic and cultural and intellectual events that are all associated with that. And Karganomia in Budapest started with a bike manufacturer, which became, and making cargo bikes as well as two-wheeled bikes and one-wheeled bikes. 
And then more recently, they dropped the manufacturing, like this is several years later, is they do hiring out. People can come in there and repair their own bikes. They run a lot of biking events because there are a lot of people who feel intimidated by cycling. Mm. During COVID, the, the bikes were allowed on the roads, but the cars weren't. And the cargo bikes were one of the ways, and they still use all their, they have a, a small farm on the edge of Budapest, and they have community-supported agriculture, all, all brought in on train and then by the bikes. So they also have, they have associations with the university, they have internships, they have their training students there with the agriculture, they have networks with bakeries, you know, sourdough bread, all of that kind of thing. So that what you're actually doing there is you're not just having a household that's looking at, at trying to deal with its own waste and all of those kind of things, mm-hmm. developing the infrastructure. And as part of this, the long-term plan is also is to be consistently asking that government have more control and on a local level over infrastructure and services because this is another way that we can actually economise a lot more in terms and, and get mm. back to economies of sufficiency. One of the problems with scaling up is, is that this is one of the reasons for the waste because it's all so much. There are so mm-hmm. many people out there to service or whatever in these big cities. We're lucky because we live in a rural area where it's more contained. And I think at this point, we can actually be making more advances and showing how these kinds of things work on the ground. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thanks, Anitra. What about from your perspective, Megan? What, where, so what do you see happening? Yeah, I mean, I am really, really optimistic these days. I just see across Australia, but across the world, so many initiatives, businesses, small and big policies that are pointing us in not necessarily the right, but a better direction. What we're not yet seeing is the the legislative and the policy and the other supporting frameworks around mm. that to help all of those individual positive initiatives you know connect and leverage and benefit and turn into the mainstream so it, so i think we do still have these kind of disparate some increasing networked and connection between all of these great Mm -hmm. ideas and initiatives but what we really do need is sort of that kind of policy framework that's going to make these things thrive and become the mainstream and not just individual Mm -hmm. but yeah I mean I think in terms of what we're seeing out there the energy sector is a really great example to think about the the phenomenal transition that has occurred now everyone is well aware of the technological transition So with the energy sector, of course, you know, we had our old technologies, which was, you know, fossil fuel and these centralised energy distribution Mm -hmm. systems. And it worked really well for the time. It was, you know, phenomenal, innovative technology at the time when it was created, but it, you know, it no longer works for us now. So we're, of course, seeing this shift in our energy sector in it being, you know, renewable energies and a more distributed system that's not reliant on large scale point of source, you know, fossil fuel. 
But we're seeing a whole range of other shifts in our energy sector, and that's got to do with the ability for community and people to participate and own and Mm -hmm. control and influence. Now, our old energy sector was what we would call an exclusive industry. It really excluded most people from being part of it, from informing it, from creating it and making it into something that we need. Energy is something that's essential for our basic needs and everything. And energy is something that every local person, every individual, every business across the world uses. And so because of that, you know, we should have more control and influence over that. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't Mm -hmm. support going back to a publicly owned energy system. I don't think that's the solution. Some forms of public ownership are important in our energy system. But what I do see happening in our energy system is because of new technology, local people, local communities and towns all around the world can have more control and influence over that energy sector and they can receive the benefits and the returns that flow from that. So, of course, we see people with solar on their roof. That is them owning now. They own that asset, they control that asset and they get the returns from that asset and they're connected into a system. Then, of course, we've got these great community development corporations, energy Mm -hmm. corporations that are investing in renewable energy in place. So they're owning now and influencing, controlling that. Mm -hmm. And then we see those types of community energy corporations partnering with the private sector and partnering with government to, you know, put in place battery systems and a whole range of things like that. Now, if we apply that model then to, say, shift it to the petrol and the fuel industry, it's another great part of our economy that's essential for everyday functioning of our economies. You know, we need fuel to drive everything that we do. And that that fuel economy, too, has been extremely exclusive. So only really wealthy people that can get into the petroleum industry and countries as well. It's the type of thing that's excluding countries because only those who have oil and then control the distribution of that. Whereas now when we think about, of course, electric vehicles, we are seeing these shifts where local people can actually be part of the fuel industry. You know, there's a great Mm -hmm. example over in the UK called Charge My Street, which is a community development corporation that they get money from. So the community invests and has a share in Charge My Street and then Charge My Street buys and establishes charging stations across its town. So that's now a fuel industry that is owned and controlled by the local community and the benefits flow from that. Now, what we're seeing through the work that we do are examples of that in every industry across our economy. So it's possible to take that same model and apply it to any industry, even the aircraft industry. So if we think about that, you know, the airline industry is an essential part of, you know, our day-to-day lives. It's how people can move those long distances. And I saw this wonderful presentation in Tasmania at the SEGRA conference that talked about the future of, of aircraft. And the presenter was talking about, I wasn't really paying attention. I was like, oh, this isn't relevant for me. And then she said, the future of aircraft is going to be more democratic. And my ears, you know, pricked up. I was like, what does she mean? 
what is she talking about? And she described that technologically, they already have now these sort of, it's in between, I guess, a drone and a helicopter and a plane. But in the future, local communities could actually buy these types of aircraft and they could own them and they could utilise them to fly their members of the community where they need to across Australia. And that particular aircraft, the benefits and the, the, you know, the, the wealth that it creates could flow back into the community. So honestly, there are just so many great examples of a shift in the way we engage and relate and transact and exchange and trade. And I just think that we need to promote all of those examples but also to create the wonderful sort of, you know, framework that's going to help them thrive and disrupt disrupt the existing system and then become the norm and the mainstream. Beautiful. So that begs the question, and you've really leaned into this, Megan, about how do, how do we shift this work from isolated and separate projects or disruptors that are happening? And, and how do we hold this more as a movement? And You've very much talked about that this movement comes from more democratic and more locally, more community ownership, more community control, more community involvement in decision-making. You've talked about that the opportunities at that level also need to be around ownership as well as increased democratised decision-making. What else would you think needs to happen to help make that movement or grow that movement? I was just going to say um, last year around the election, we ran a campaign called the Minister for Community Wealth Building. So, you know, we were thinking, how do we really advocate for, you know, big federal shifts? But in running that campaign, I, I, I really sort of put some thinking into, you know, what does this look like at you know, at a national level and a state level mm-hmm. and, and how do we create the this wide ecosystem to enable this at the local level but also, of course, at, you know, a national level and, and at a global level. Because whilst we are talking a lot about at the local, we do live in, in, in a global society um, and so it has to be connected. And one of the ideas I had was, I'm not sure if, if you're both familiar with, but I think it's called the National Strategy for Ecologically Sustainable Development. And, and what it is, is that it's, it's an agreement between all of the states of Australia and the federal government of Australia around ecologically sustainable development. And it came out of the sort of Brundtland report and work around climate change and sustainable development. And there are a set of principles within this national strategy. And basically what it says is that every state and the federal government have signed on to and committed to the National Strategy for Ecologically Sustainable Development. I think that's what it's called. And in signing on to it, they agree and commit to embedding the principles of that strategy into their policy frameworks, into their legislative frameworks. And so you see the integration of that then, say, at a state level, a whole Mm -hmm. range of legislation that's created. In, In the start of the legislation, you'll see its sort of principles and its purpose. And ecologically sustainable development is often always written into that. So you see 
that there and then that informs the legislation. You see that in the policies as well. But you also see it in often governments will have like policy decision-making frameworks, legislative decision-making frameworks, Mm -hmm. and in making decisions and coming up with solutions, they have to consider things. So you even see the ESD principles in there. I guess what we talked about in terms of making this economic shift and providing the framework was we called it a national strategy for community wealth building. So all federal Mm -hmm. governments and the state government committing to the principles of community wealth building. So committing to place-based approaches, committing to people-centred and place-centred economies, committing to increasing democratic participation in our economies, not just in the way we govern our society, committing to increasing the level of actual ownership, equity ownership, and so on and so forth with the principles. And And so I guess whether it's community wealth building or a wellbeing economy or or wherever we land, but I think something like that, a national strategy that's committed by federal, state and even local governments to these are the principles upon Mm -hmm. which we want our economy to operate and we are going to embed these principles into all of our decision-making frameworks to ensure that we're all collectively moving in that direction. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. Megan, what about from your perspective? So Megan's very much talked about this movement needs to be held within policy and decision-making frameworks that hold against a principle basis for people in government at multiple levels working together to make decisions and to inform broader policy to make sure that we bring in different ways of acting and thinking around economy and how we're holding this. What about from your perspective, Anitra, how do you see movement making in this area? I think I'm I'm much more for a grassroots point of view because you know, like, I think good luck with, you know, we've got a an ALP government at the moment that's just putting almost four, $400 billion into nuclear submarines, supposedly over security, you know, when we need food security and housing security. And that's what's on the news every night is, is that there are more people out there needing food and uh, and housing and that kind of thing. I think just as much as we have a very weak democracy in the terms of us not having much of a say, everything is by representation and and often we don't have people's candidates standing that really represent our points of view at all. So, you know, you can have nothing from the beginning. So I would say the one thing is, is that I would really love to see councils become the strongest form of government. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that way we would definitely have a much more direct say in a lot that was was happening around us. I think that when the degrowth movement, which has had two great big conferences in the European Union, when we've had those conferences and with politicians and the bureaucrats at the EU, and some of this has gone into practice, they you know, the EU is probably at the forefront of big government around the world in terms of thinking of recycling and circular economies and all of these kinds of things. There we've argued very much for enabling rather than disabling policies. And what we mean by that, if you get back to housing, is that it's extremely difficult for people to make their own homes. 
to make their own houses, even though there's a, a lot of ways now that you can bring together materials and, and put together houses that are easier and that kind of thing. So we want policies that are, that, that are actually enabling people to do things directly and do things collectively. That's own land collectively or whatever. As I sort of indicated earlier on, I think that the sooner a lot of our resources, what we call resources, land and water, forest, are actually operating as commons with us deciding, well, who has the use rights over those and all being modelled around basic needs. I see that as being terribly important. When it comes to sort of things like the whole green revolution, I'm unfortunately quite sceptical. I'm sceptical of the amount of energy that we keep using. I think that if you add degrowth into the picture and you're economising on energy, that will be extremely important for the future. For instance, I've had solar panels in four houses and similar with each house, you get to a point where you're getting, for the electricity that you're creating, you're getting a quarter of what the company is getting when it sells it on. I mean, those 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 companies still have us by the jugular and it's the same with gas and, and, and everything else. They're saying that they have to increase gas now, all of these kinds of things, and they seem to be in the seat to do that. And so I would just sort of finally say that I think that we also have to take on board that we are living in an, a situation of emergency and urgency. So if we want something, if we see that the only way that we can have a truly economic world, that's an economy that's living within limits that are mm. set by ecology and by humans, then I think that we actually need to reach out and reach those utopias as quickly as possible because we haven't got the time to just have reforms. Mm. I must say I have loved both the points of intersection and the points of diversity in your conversation today. It's been really powerful and I have really enjoyed listening to both of you. Just before we finish up, if there was one piece of wisdom that you wanted listeners to take away today what would your one piece of wisdom being I know it's hard to pick them out of the many you've come up with today just one piece of wisdom yeah that one's really easy for me Sharon I I I I just I believe with my whole being that that the one thing that really could put us on transformational shift to utopia is that principle of ownership Mm-hmm. I, I honestly truly do believe if we enable local people across all of Australia and you know the world to have increasing actual ownership over their local economies so you know be that over local assets local land you know local businesses whatever it might be or even you know national things you know I think that ownership can be shifted by by everyone mm-hmm. so local in a place can you know they can invest in or have a share in in something or other people can support more disadvantaged people 
to to buy a share into something, you know, things like that. I think businesses and industries that are operating, they can easily create a model where they're opening up, you know, shares and ownership in their organisations to community, to their employees, to their consumers, so that more of these people have an actual ownership stake in in that particular organisation. Because if you're trying to help a community, they will be much more better supported Mm -hmm. if you give them true empowerment and an ability to actually have some sort of equity stake and ownership into something than by doing whatever else it is that you're doing. And for governments, if you create policies that are going to lead to ownership at that local level, I think you're creating that shift in. Beautiful. Thanks, Megan. And what about from you, Anitra? Well, I think that I would just implore people to be creative and also not to give up, to be full of hope. Because I woke up this morning and there was some someone saying that we've never faced such massive challenges in entire history of humankind. I thought, you know, there's a baby somewhere this morning that's going to take its first step. And, you know, that first step is going to feel like, well, there wasn't anything before that first step. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to pull them, learn to pull themselves up, you know, onto, their, onto the couch or the chair or whatever. We actually have to get ourselves really back to basics. We have to not be overwhelmed and just use all the creativity that we ourselves have, and I'm sure that we can do it. Mm, fantastic. That has been really terrific. Thank you so much, Dr. Anitra Nelson and Megan Burkett for your time and your wisdom today. Go well and we'll speak to you soon. Bye. Thanks, Sharon.